So I think that part of the reason why radio pharma can really take off now is because big pharma is not afraid of that complexity of manufacturing anymore. In fact, we look pretty damn simple. Hi and welcome to this episode of the Terragnostic Talks podcast. My name is Gustav Vidar and together with me in the studio I have the fantastic Annette Andrian. Welcome Annette. Thank you Gus- Gustav. How are you? <laughs> I'm fine, thank you. How are you today? It's good. Great. Today we have an interesting guest. Who is it? It is Christian Berenbruch. The CEO of the Telex Pharmaceuticals. Uh, I think we just start. Here's the yes. presentation. Take it away. He's been called a serial entrepreneur. And no wonder. He's started or financed about 20 new tech companies, mostly in healthcare. Dr. Christian Berenbruch is co-founder and CEO of Telex Pharmaceuticals that develops a portfolio of clinical stage products that address significant unmet needs in oncology and rare diseases. So what's in the Terragnostic pipeline? And what's the best way for industry and healthcare to cooperate? About that and much more in this episode of Theragnostic Talks. Welcome, Chris. Uh, it's the evening in Melbourne, Australia, where we are. Tell us about your day. Well, you know, we're very lucky because we are one of the few places in the world where we have no coronavirus right now. Uh, so although we're all walking around with masks and being a bit careful, um, it's been a nice day. It's February, so the weather's a bit, uh, not, not like where you are right now, where I think it's a tiny bit colder. Uh, so good. I'm good. Thank you for asking, and uh, I'm happy to be here with you. We have done some research on you, Chris, uh, and it's fascinating reading about all about the things you have done. Uh, you have a PhD in biomedical engineering from the Oxford. Uh, you have studied at New York University in Paris, in London School of Economics, and, and the University of Melbourne. And you have started and financed about 20 new tech uh, companies, mostly in healthcare. Uh, sounds busy and sounds like you never sleep. Uh, you know, my my work is a hobby, so I get to... I get to um, just be a hobbyist all day long. Um, Telix is not a hobby. Telix is very hard work. But um, but yes, I, I've been active as an entrepreneur for a long time, and I'm one of those people that spent too much time in university. So I'm basically unemployable, which means that I need to create companies in order to <laughs> to put food on the table. Um, but uh, but yes, thank you for the kind words. I, I enjoy learning, and uh, I'm always curious. So. And I think that's the reason why I love nuclear medicine, because it's the most incredible area of science. You know, you get to combine physics, chemistry, biology, medicine, politics, because nuclear is very political. Uh, yes. And um, it's a fascinating field. So it's a, <clears throat> I've been fascinated by nuclear medicine, you know, since I was a kid. One day I went to school and I was living in the Netherlands at the time. And my school gym had been turned into a thyroid testing center because Chernobyl had happened. And, oh. um, and uh, so I went to school and the school uh, had a lot of uh, sons and daughters of NATO personnel. And so they had radiation detectors in the school and uh, people thought that a, a dirty bomb had gone off. 
uh, because the radiation levels were so high of iodine and, and, and uh, cesium. Hmm. So that was my first experience of nuclear medicine was getting my thyroid tested. I think I was like 11 or something. Oh. And um, so it had a big impact on me. And uh, I think that I always was fascinated by nuclear medicine from that day forward. So what uh, is, uh, I mean, with the long, very impressive track record that you have, what has been the three key success, success factors for you? Well, I don't consider myself to be successful yet because I haven't managed to get a product out to the market that I think is a game changer uh, for nuclear medicine. But I think we're close to um, doing that. I experimented with a lot of different technologies in my life, which some of which were successful um, commercially. I mean, in terms of selling a company or making some money. But um, you know, I started Telix with Andreas Kluge, who's also well known in our field, because we both got tired of seeing amazing technologies that can change patient care fundamentally, just simply not making it out out to market. Um, so, um, but I think the three things that are really important, you have to be curious, you have to hang in there because it's not an easy pathway. So you need to be tenacious and you need to care about people and not just a few people, but you need to, for nuclear medicine to be wildly successful, we have to care about people everywhere because nuclear medicine in Sweden or Germany or Australia is not the same as nuclear medicine in Nigeria or India or Russia. Um, so, so we need to come up with solutions that make uh, nuclear medicine really accessible for everyone. And the reason why we should do that is because it has an amazing cost benefit profile and the diagnostics can be game changers for patients. We can cure patients with diagnostics if we you know, can delineate the disease early enough And then, of course, the theranostic, uh, the, the therapeutic nuclear medicine that's coming down the, the pathway, that's, you know, that's a game changer for oncology. Mm. And how should we do that? Uh, you know, you talk about the developing countries, you talk about race, Russia and Africa. Uh, how should they use these new technologies? Oh, well, I, th I think that um, nuclear medicine is everywhere. It just has different, mm. uh, different degrees of capability. Uh, and one of the things, one of the things that's happened with nuclear medicine, I think in the last decade, really, mm. is we now see a global supply chain. I mean, uh, your company is a example of that, right? It's a, mm. it's an example, you know, you're a dominant player in, in the Nordic regions, but the, re the reality of it is, is that, um, supply chain for, um, radio metals, for lutetium, for F-18, for, all kinds of things are becoming much more uh, established globally and governments recognize the value more. The private sector is able to uh, rely on a supply chain. Um, and, and so that's, that's what makes all the difference. You have to be able to treat a patient everywhere in the world every single day. Right. Yeah. We talked to, you know, we talked to, to your friend Rod Hicks for some weeks ago and, and I just asked him because Sometimes uh, I think some companies uh, imaging is not important part in the diagnostics and and but he say it's it uh, so uh, and I asked him because that could could that be a a limiting factor for the development of diagnostics that there are no pet cities or we have no you know no environment for that in 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 developing countries. Yeah, look, I think I think you're right. Um, so we have spec uh, pet will become cheaper. 
uh, you know, the traditional, mostly the threesome of GE, Siemens, and Philips, although Philips maybe not so much anymore. But those, those companies are now being challenged by new players that are coming out of different markets. You know, when I look at what, for example, a company like United Imaging is doing in China, I mean, this is, this is mind-blowing technology. And it's not, it's funny because when we look at this technology with a Western lens or a European or a U.S. lens, we see sophistication of drug development and very rapid scanning and uh, dynamic studies and low dose microdose studies and we look at we look at it as a pharma pharmaceutical development tool and of course it was developed in china to be throughput we're talking about a pet center that will do 100 patients a day and uh so the world the world has a different perspective on where nuclear medicine is going and even our company you know we signed a partnership with grand pharma late last year uh, a very, I think, quite a up-and-coming Chinese company in oncology and nuclear medicine, and and the reason why that um, is a strategically important relationship is because if you're not doing business in some of these markets, you're really not doing business, and um, that's 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 a, a really interesting challenge for a company like like ours for sure. Rod Rod is um, a, somebody that I admire. A great deal. I mean, the, Peter, the whole Peter McCallum Cancer Center is a terrific nuclear medicine department. And obviously, Michael Hoffman is making a great name for himself and Declan Murphy and a bunch of other um, really smart people there. Uh, and what I like about Australia is it's actually a two-tier healthcare system. We have, we have the best and we have the worst. We have parts of Australia that are super wealthy, where we have in Melbourne and Sydney, we have lots of pets and cyclotrons and everything. And then when you go out into the rural communities, we don't have anything except basic nuclear medicine. So the question is, does a, does a farmer or an agricultural worker or a, or a miner have to go into a city to get a, to get a nuclear medicine study done? Or can we make nuclear medicine regionally accessible? And I think that this is the same problem in, even inside Australia. It's the same problem that we have in the rest of the world. How do we make nuclear medicine accessible anywhere? And I know that Rod is just as passionate about a, a new technetium tracer as he is a new uh, gallium tracer. Um, so that's, you know, it's great to see thought leaders that have that sort of equitable view. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more? Because we know, uh, I think we know Europe quite well and, and US. How, is, how far has Terranostic come in, in, in Asia, like in China and, and, and these countries? I think it's accelerating really fast. I see lots of investment. You know, China uh, is an example where the government has in, has made a very significant amount of money uh, available for developing uh, isotope production capabilities. Fundamentally, the cost benefit of nuclear medicine is, is very high. And um, nuclear medicine is not cheap to implement, but the cost benefit is high. And I think that more and more countries see it as... Um, as a as a cornerstone of oncology care, potentially, you know, it's not there yet, uh, but it, it can potentially be there. And uh, um, but it requires it requires government investment, typically alongside private sector. A private sector isn't going to set up nuclear reactors in China to make isotopes. It's going to be the government that does that. Um, you know, so I think I think that uh, this sort of growth opportunity that we see is underpinned by really the buy-in that you're seeing from governments that this is an important technology that it needs to be there 
It's, and it's not just the therapeutic medicine, it is the diagnostic medicine. The challenge is that historically, commercially speaking, diagnostic medicine hasn't been all that profitable. Um, it's, 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 a, it's an okay business, but it's not a great business. And it's, it's highly commoditized. We're gonna see this with PSMA imaging pretty quickly, like we did with FDG, right? In the beginning, FDG was quite a high value product and it rapidly diminished in value over time. Uh, PSMA is going to become very competitive as well. And so, the, so making a business case just around diagnostic imaging is, is not enough. It, you have to say that diagnostic imaging paves the way for therapeutic medicine and therapeutic medicine is where the value creation is both for your patients, you know, and for your shareholders. Yes, the question, how can you secure that there will be, because as you say, it's interlinked for diagnostics, it's diagnostics and it's therapy, and the therapy has to have the diagnostic to make it really, really good. How can you secure that there will be, you're talking about this business case, how can you make that business case to really make the uh, um, companies invest also in, diagno in, in diagnostics? Yeah. So one of my former companies was a company called Imaginab, which was a spin out from UCLA, and we only did diagnostics. And um, I ended up leaving that company because I couldn't convince our investors to become a therapeutics company because we realized, the management team realized pretty quickly that diagnostic medicine um, wasn't, I mean, you can make money, but it's not, it's not the big opportunity. But it's actually not just enough by itself. You know, there's not enough point. There's no value in, in imaging a patient if you can't then treat the patient. And my experience in that company was, was hugely informative and was one of the most, most frustrating times of my life because we would go and sit down with oncologists and sit down with pharma companies and they would say, wow, these images are incredible. And so now what? Right? And it's, so it's the now what um, that, that matters. And uh, so uh, I believe that uh, this is not a unique opportunity for, for, for example, for Telix. I, I believe that Novartis, for example, has woken up to this. I look at a lot of their marketing campaigns recently and they're focused on the diagnostic imaging piece. And I think that uh, Big Pharma does understand personalized medicine very, very well. It's just a question of what are the clinical indications that are gonna make the commercial success story speak for themselves. But also, as you say, personalized uh, treatment, you say that they understand it, but still it's um, in the business model as we see it often, it is uh, one fits all, not to confuse the treatment. You know, I, I don't really believe this. And, and the reason why I don't really believe this is I think one of the, the interesting things about the pharma industry in the last, again, let's say the, the last decade is that they've embraced things like cell therapies and uh, and gene therapies where in some cases you're developing a product for n equals one i mean think about it you're if you're developing an autologous cell therapy uh, for a rare disease you're developing or a, a rare oncology indication you're developing a, a personal one uh, n equals one drug effectively and i think that changed the risk appetite that big pharma has for complex manufacturing um, and it, and so I remember, I mean, I started in nuclear medicine 20 years ago when I was at Siemens, we, we I was part of the executive team that sold CTI to Siemens in, in, uh, 2000, um, 2005. And, um, 
and we had PetNet and we had a biomarker development group that was led by a, a really talented guy named Hartwith Kolb, who's now at, at, at Janssen. Um, and we had a bunch of interesting tracers that were available and we had some, uh, some early Theranostic concepts that were quite exciting. Uh, and we always, we always got told by big pharma that the manufacturing and supply chain and logistics of radio pharma was too complicated. And that's why they didn't really want to invest. And, you know, to some extent, that's true. If you can't deliver a product every single day to a patient everywhere in the world, then from a big pharma perspective, you don't have a product. But now, if you think about a personally a personalized dose of a lutetium or an actinium product is still a mass-produced product. You're still you're still delivering delivering a batch of product. You're just calibrating it for an individual person. That's a hell of a lot simpler than developing an N equals one two million dollar cell therapy. So I think that part of the reason why radio pharma can really take off now is because big pharma is not afraid of that complexity of manufacturing anymore. In fact, we look pretty damn simple. I, I've actually been I've been involved in the cell therapy space. I was a chairman of a of a of a small um, small cell therapies company for a couple of years, and we manufactured quite a few clinical products. And I don't think I don't think our production uh, and manufacturing is is more complicated than cell therapies. I think it's a lot less. PSMA uh, for prostate cancer is around the corner, or the treatment for PSMA and the diagnostics. Uh, what is the next corner? I think the next corner is the tumor microenvironment and immune uh, immune imaging, immune imaging, immune therapy, Ra radiation. We we fully misunderstand what radiation is and how it really uh, plays a role in cancer. I I've personally experienced the journey over the last, um, particularly the last ten years, uh, with uh, Imaginab to some extent, and then Telix, where. A lot of the data sets that we have in therapeutic nuclear medicine are driven by a traditional radiation oncology view of the world, where it's about tumor dose, tumor dosimetry, delivering radiation into a tumor, and it's about delivering enough radiation to kill using the biological mechanisms of DNA damage and, and things that we really understand. These are sledgehammer approaches to modulating the tumor microenvironment. And it also turns out, unsurprisingly, that most of the targets that we've worked on um, traditionally have been targets that are in the periphery of the tumor. They're highly expressed when it, you know, PSMA is really a tumor neovascular target. Uh, carbonic anhydrase 9 is, is a more peripheral target. It's expressed in the fringes of the tumor that are starting to be deprived of oxygen. Um, so all of these kind of targets uh are kind are you know they sort of speak to a an old world understanding really of how we deliver radiation into the tumor microenvironment but i think the new and exciting areas are when we can deliver radiation to hit different immune subsets immune cell subsets that are part of the resistance mechanisms to the uh to the immunotherapies that we are developing and when we can deliver radiation to the tumor microenvironment to make those tumors more susceptible and even recruit immune cells into the tumor microenvironment, then we have something that's uh, a game changer. And I, see, I personally believe that 10 years from now, uh, we'll have uh, you know, a pile of drugs that are responsible for delivering the immunomodulatory effects 
um, and we'll have a pile of, of solutions which are about um, pre prepping the tumor microenvironment optimally for those immunotherapies. And I think radiation is going to be the number one delivery of that. And even more importantly, I don't think it's going to be external beam radiation. I think we're going to have a period of time where external beam radiation plays a role, but um, endoradiotherapy or internally delivered radiation has such a different biological profile uh, and it does things in such a fundamentally different way. If you can get radiation inside the nucleus of a cell, uh, it, has, it has a totally different uh, impact on, on the way in which the biology uh, responds to radiation and the, the way in which the immune system is directed um, towards, the, towards the tumor. So that's, that's, that's that whole frontier. And we, so we have lots of diagnostic tools coming out now uh, that are uh, looking at immune cell subsets we have. Uh, you know, the Imaginab concept of CD8, the cell site concept, which is essentially looking at activated uh, immune cells more, more broadly, very nice technology. You have the FAPI work that's being done. That's looking at fibroblasts, which is an immune cell actor as well. Uh, so I think there's lots of potential there on the diagnostic front. And then on the therapeutic front, if you look at the number of combo trials that are being done right now with checkpoint inhibitors and radiation and um, all sorts of interesting immuno-oncology drugs. It's clear that the radiation oncology world is about to become very, very different. And the pharma, pharma industry wants that. They, they want access to radiation oncology, but not as a box in the basement of a hospital. They want access to radiation oncology as an injectable product. So promising future. So fascinating to hear about this. And wow, so many opportunities. Therefore, how to make this available, how to, to secure that this will really be benefiting the patients that, is, uh, that are in need, how to do it, what step is needed? Because we have the pharma, we have the academia, and we have the healthcare system. Yeah, I think the direction, the direct direction of your question is, is really, really interesting. And I, I think if we can be self-reflective, um, you know, you, you've had other guests on your podcast, like like Rod, like Michael Hoffman, um, where I think if you were to really ask the leading, uh, you know, the thought leaders in our field as to why is nuclear medicine always kind of slow to get off to the races, it's because we don't really run the efficacy studies and the clinical trials that need to be run in order to demonstrate to oncologists that we have something special and. We try at Telix to, to be different. We, we are running clinical multi-center phase three pivotal trials, very expensive studies for both diagnostics and therapeutics. But nuclear medicine has not always been like that. A lot of nuclear medicine has been about building a hobby environment, you know, working in the basement of a hospital somewhere in Germany and, and cranking out patients under special access and compassionate use. But that's not, that's not an easy entry point for a commercial organization to, to take over the productization of nuclear medicine. Because on the one hand, you have this amazing amount of human experience, but on the other hand, it's not cataloged in any way that you can take to a regulator. And it's, it's a very, very tough equation. So as we see these new technologies come through, what we have to do is, as an industry, we have to be committed to running the clinical trials and capturing the value of these products in proper uh, randomized controlled trials. And the other thing that we need to do 
which is super important for nuclear medicine. Nuclear medicine used to be about a kind of specialty area that dealt with patients mostly at the end of their life with advanced metastatic disease. Uh, and nuclear medicine should not not be about that. And 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 there are some. I'm not going to name names because most of these people are my friends and people that I respect, even if they're nuclear medicine old timers. But there there are there are folks out there that still think that medical oncology and nuclear oncology is a is a, or radiation oncology is a competing field that we shouldn't be doing chemotherapy and we shouldn't be doing utilizing the standard sets of medical oncology tools that instead we should just focus on nuclear medicine because nuclear medicine is better actually the most impressive thing is to make nuclear medicine integrate with medical oncology and if we can do that diagnostically through the tumor board and the diagnostic and the staging process of the patient and then do it therapeutically by combining nuclear medicine with standard of care then we make nuclear medicine something that the medical oncologist believes in. And so in prostate cancer, that's obviously that's combining nuclear medicine with taxanes, with antiandrogen drugs. And in fact, they're biologically synergistic. When you, when you give a patient with prostate cancer androgen deprivation therapy, it drives the expression of PSMA. And so it makes your PSMA therapeutic work better if you use it in combination. The same with checkpoint inhibitors. If you can irradiate the, the Treg cells in the tumor microenvironment, you make checkpoint inhibitors more effective. So what we need to do is run the clinical trials. Um, but unfortunately, with nuclear medicine, there's always been a shortage of investment in the space. And, and so if you don't have the ability to raise capital to run the clinical trials, then the clinical trials aren't going to happen. And I think it's, it's pioneers like, like AAA, uh, that showed us that, well, actually, if you get a good data set and you manage your regulatory process well, um, and you productize uh, uh, something effectively and you develop a supply chain for it, you can make a valuable business that will return capital to investors. And that's the sort of proof statement that's really needed because traditionally nuclear medicine has not been very high, not, not been represented by very high quality companies. Uh, and lots of failures and, and lots of um, poorly considered products and things like Bexar and Zevlin, which were underinvested in. Um, so I think now we're at a stage where nuclear medicine, everyone sees the potential. Uh, medical oncology is interested. They still want to see the, the proof statements through the trials, but everyone sees the potential diagnostically and therapeutically, and there is money to invest uh, in nuclear medicine. And so now, now the beginning you know, of our field coming to life is, has, you know, has started. That sounds great. Uh, when there will be now capital or, or resources and putting together those uh, very critical studies, uh, thinking about that many of those patients or patient groups are rare groups, rare disease. What do you see about them reflecting on phase three studies and is that the way to go? Well, we have to compete with other clinical trials, of course, to access patients. Uh, but I think that nuclear medicine um, can certainly um, be helpful in patients where other treatment options are, are not available in the first instance. And I think the diagnostic piece is really important because the diagnostic component, you know, we should not think that theranostics are just about nuclear medicine. 
Um, we have, for example, lots of collaborations with pharma companies where we are doing imaging to support non-nuclear medicine drug development. Um, and uh, so, so I think that the diagnostic piece is like the ambassador of nuclear medicine that can open up the interest in the field more broadly. Um, and I think in, in some, of these, uh, some of these rare diseases, the diagnostic medicine can pave the way for the therapeutic medicine as well. And um, so, yeah, that's, it's definitely something that we are interested in uh, as a company and uh, see lots of potential for. Because there's a lot of criticism um, regarding when we talk about patient access or market access, that the, the, the treatments being developed and then put on the market is so expensive. And uh, that will be a hurdle, could be a hurdle of uh, patients to uh, get the, pay, uh, the treatment. What do you think about that? What, how to approach? I think that the pricing of products should be based on their, um, their cost benefit. I think that um, some products recently um, that have been approved as therapeutic nuclear medicine products have received criticism because they leverage uh, or the pricing leverages an orphan drug designation, which is not necessarily correctly exploited. You know, an orphan drug designation should not be there to enable you to get premium pricing for a technology that's been sitting on the shelf for 20 years. That's not what an orphan drug designation should be for. So, you know, I think um, orphan drug designation should be there to encourage investment into an asset that would otherwise not come to life uh, were it not for the designation. And that's not the situation that we have with some nuclear medicine products um, at the moment. So I think we should draw a line under the sand and focus more on the future innovation you know, the problem with nuclear medicine is because traditionally the investment was not very impressive into the field. We have technologies like MIBG and Dotatate and whatever that have been around for, I mean, Dotatate is 40 years old. It's 40 years old, right? Um, so to say that, uh, that a technology that's 40 years old should command a pre price premium uh, when the supply chain is not that complicated is is probably you know it, it, it's reasonable for healthcare systems to push back on that, but for for new drug innovation, nuclear medicine stands on par with any other field of drug development. And if there's opportunities to meet unmet patient need uh, through specific regulatory designations, I think that's only beneficial for the field. Uh, we're talking about uh, nuclear medicine in the you know in the base floor of the hospitals. Uh, they have production capacity. Maybe they have a cyclotron. They have their own radio chemists uh, that practically can produce whatever they want. How should we deal with these things? How, how should you deal with this? How with the commercial products versus brew your own products in the basement? I think it's a great. I think it's a great question, and it's certainly something that we we think about a lot. In some countries, like like even in Australia, um, certainly in Scandinavian countries, uh, particularly Finland, uh, very well known for this uh, for this phenomenon. I, I think there are three parts to it. So I think the first one is uh, when a commercial product becomes available, believe it or not, it actually reduces cost. 
And there's a lot of there's a lot of cost involved in running your own service and doing your own product development and managing your own quality systems and things like that. If you can buy an off-the-shelf product or a pre-prepared dose once the technology becomes mature, you actually you actually save money. The second thing is I, I don't believe those academic departments and those hospital nuclear pharmacies, they were never set up to become large volume commercial producers, even to produce for other hospitals. Uh, that's, that's infrastructure that should be used for R&D and innovation. And companies should be smarter. They should say, look, if something good comes out of a nuclear medicine department or we have a nuclear medicine department that's very capable, how about uh, investing in clinical trials and R&D innovation and really leverage the brain power that's there? Because, you know, it's not just the companies that have to take responsibility for this. It's the academic environment as well. You can't keep a radiochemist happy by just making... PSMA 11 every single day and making FDG every single day, uh, you know, this is, this is kind of, it's kind of nonsense. And then the third thing is, is scale. So when commercial products get to scale and can have ubiquitous availability, um, not only does the price, not, not only does it result in a commercial benefit and an economic scale that can be passed on to customers, but you end up with then the ability to invest back into the innovation in a much more direct way. So I think, um, I mean, we don't, we don't try to, we don't try to change a nuclear medicine department's viewpoint on buying a commercial product versus making their own through a specification. We, we try to explain to them how they can free up their capacity to do other things, which are more, uh, more added value. And I think also with the nuclear medicine field now, it's so innovative, so many new molecules, so many new opportunities. It's not like 10 years ago where there was nothing. You know, we didn't have any new major diagnostic approvals in nuclear medicine for 20 years, not since FDG, frankly, right? So now there's lots of interesting things to play around with. And so it's reasonable for commercial organizations to scale up and make things easier for academic uh, and, and hospital nuclear medicine departments to focus on the, the innovation. Uh, and of course, the burden then falls onto us to make sure that the supply chain is good and the reliability of the product is good and the, the quality of the product is there. This is really important. Uh, you are also uh, teaching, having students, uh, and that's very impressive on top of everything. And uh... no, 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 not so much anymore. Uh, I used to do it. I used to do it a lot. Um, the, the last two years, last two or three years, um, I haven't been in the classroom at all, which I really miss because I, it's one of my favorite things to do. But, uh, you know, I, I, about, about three years ago when, when Telix went public, I stopped, um, I stopped all the side projects. Uh, there's not enough time in the day. I have two little children. I have a five-year-old and, uh, and actually now a six-year-old, just recently a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. And uh, I basically, you know, between work and um, and two kids, I just don't have any don't have any bandwidth for side projects, unfortunately. But I do miss it. Yeah, but it's uh, uh, now it's about you being a mentor, sharing your experience with somebody else. And, and it might be your teachers, uh, not, not teachers, st sorry, students, but also your children then. How, what would you, I mean, what is your message to, to them? What do you try to uh, get through? Well, I think, 
I mean, certainly, look, we have a lot of young people in the company, and uh, and I'm very active overall in the, in the field that we're in. Uh, we have great clinical collaborations and R&D collaborations, and uh, I think that the role of entrepreneurs is to, uh, particularly ones like me that have made a lot of mistakes along the way in their entrepreneurial journey, um, is to help other people to understand how to avoid some of those um, pitfalls. And me personally, I, I mean, Telix is the outcome of 20 years of, of perse perseverance in the nuclear medicine field uh, and getting to really understand the good and the bad and the ugly parts of our industry. And I think one of the reasons why it's been successful relatively quickly is because it leverages that experience in those networks. And I take a lot of pleasure in sharing that experience and networks with other people. We work with a lot of small companies. We work with a lot of academic groups that have got neat ideas because we're open-minded and we're receptive to the idea that innovation cannot be just internally generated. And uh, and that's one of my key lessons. I mean, companies, if you look at the drug development industry overall, you know, you can more or less count on one hand the number of good drugs that were actually developed inside a pharmaceutical company. Most most of the blockbuster therapeutics that we have ever in the history of, of, of mankind, humankind, um, have come out of academia, come out of uh, out of innovation. Now, there's a misconception, of course, people think that because something was funded by government grants or by academia, that somehow the public benefit should be reduced to neutrality because um, because it was the innovation was paid for by taxpayers. It takes a lot of uh, money and a lot of risk to take those ideas and turn them into products. So it's reasonable for pharmaceutical companies to get a return on investment uh, for sure. Uh, the risk, the risk is very, very high. But uh, but by the same token, it's a perfectly symbiotic relationship. The pharmaceutical industry cannot exist without external innovation. And when that ex external innovation um, is successful, uh, it then turns around and it funnels money back into uh, new developments and, and new academic careers and, and new innovation opportunities. So I think when we when we get it right, it's very, very powerful. And nuclear medicine is a classic example of that change now because commercial organizations are starting to exploit academic ideas. Um, nuclear medicine was the exclusive domain of academia for such a long period of time. You know, thousands of patients were treated, e even in our pipeline. We, we have thousands of patients worth of data before we even start to undertake the commercial process. And so, you know, we can't do without it. But uh, it has to be uh, it has to be done in partnership. And then when we do have a product that's successful, that we take the time and thought to work out how to go back and fuel innovation again um, as a result of that success. If we're if we're able to commercialize a product, what where do you see TLX in two years, Chris? Well, uh, two years ago, we uh, we had the mission that by 2021 we would be a leading global company in in theranostic nuclear medicine. So I think we achieve, I think we have achieved that objective. We are clinically active in um, about 30 countries. We have uh, marketing authorizations in progress in 17 countries. Uh, we, uh, we delivered last year um, almost 10,000 doses of PSMA uh, imaging agent around the globe. We, we currently ship 
cold kits and APIs and run clinical trials in 80 countries. We've done, we've actually had 80 countries uh, take receipt of our, our products um, or have the ability to reach them. So, and of course we can't do that all ourselves. We, that's very much a collaborative, um, you know, we work with some absolutely fantastic partners, including by the way, I mean, Sam Nordic is an example of one of our, you know, really great partners that services your region so, um, so effectively. So without relationships, we just can't have that reach. And so it's, it's very important to us. No, I, I'm, I'm not really motivated by the financial success of the business, which probably is something that my shareholders don't really want to hear, but I'm much more motivated by the patient success. And I think that if you can deliver good products to patients, then everything else follows. You attract great people when you have clinical success and we have amazing people in our company. Yeah, and then you also um, will have the commercial success if you're delivering uh, solutions that make a difference to patients every day. So our whole mission as a company right now, in fact, our corporate objectives for the next three years are all focused on patient centricity. We moving out of the development phase where we are trying to, you know, work so hard to make products that are going to pass the regulatory and the quality control and everything else. And now we have the ability to focus on how do we develop a pipeline that is going to make a big difference to patients and really address some of the unmet needs in, in oncology. And that's, that's the, the focus. And, and so with our first product launch, hopefully this year, subject to FDA and European regulators and Australian and Canadian regulators and a few other countries being um, finding our product successful, uh, our pr prostate imaging product uh, uh, suitable, um, then over the next four or five years, uh, we have a really huge pipeline of products to bring to market. And uh, always with this idea in mind that we will collaborate with medical oncology, that uh, diagnostics are necessary to deliver therapeutic benefit. We don't have a single therapeutic program where we don't have a companion diagnostic. Uh, and that when, when we have to go out and be geographically successful, that we select the best partners. Those are the three things that I think as a company, we are starting to do quite well. And um, hopefully two years from now um, that we have continued our successful trajectory because we've delivered well on those objectives. Who, now it's time for the Nobel Prize question. Uh, who uh -oh. do you think <laughs> deserved the Nobel Prize for their efforts in diagnostics? Oh, well, it's, it's, it's such a tough one, you know. Um, you know, it's an interesting question, and it's a dangerous question to ask me because I'm really a self-confessed nuclear medicine nerd. Um, so, um, you know, from a from a molecular imaging perspective, I've always viewed the imaging part of theranostics to be essentially in vivo immunohistochemistry. So, uh, Rosalind Yellow and her colleagues, I think it was the 1977 Nobel Prize in Medicine for the radioimmunoassay, right? So. Even if it's ex vivo, the concept is basically covered by that idea, right? Um, and then the first fully theranostic application in nuclear medicine is obviously iodine for thyroid cancer. And lots of people worked on this, but I think particularly um, uh, Samuel Sedlin in the 40s, who really demonstrated this. And then von Hevesy got the Nobel Prize in, uh, I think it was 42, for studying metabolic processes with radiation. So. Um, you know, that's essentially underpinning gamma imaging, spect imaging, even if the hardware today looks a little bit different. <laughs> um, 
And then there are some modern crazy guys like David Goldenberg for radio labeled antibodies. You know, that was work that was pioneered in the 70s. And of course, Henry Wagner, who did the first PET neuroreceptor work. Um, you know, I give Henry a mention, not only because he was a terrific human being, but, you know, Aussies like people that experiment on themselves and get Nobel Prizes. So we had Barry Marshall, who was an Australian that got the Nobel Prize for um, uh, H. pylori um, by, you know, um, experimenting on himself. <laughs> but uh, now Henry, of course, passed away about 10 years ago, so he cannot get the Nobel Prize. Um, but I think I think since the basic concepts of radiobiology are either quite old or most of the people are dead or they already got a Nobel Prize, I think it comes back to really to instrumentation again, um, which is vitally important to our field. So if we look back in history, Lawrence got the Nobel Prize for the cyclotron, with, without which we wouldn't have modern nuclear medicine. You've got Hounsfield and, and Cormick for CT. You've got Lauterbur and Mansfield for MRI. Um, so I think fundamentally, uh, Theranostics, as we appreciate it today, is powered by PET. Um, PET would not be possible without the work of, of Ed Hoffman, um, uh, Terpogossian, and, and Mike Phelps, which really concentrated a lot of PET brain power at WashU in the 1970s. I mean, that was just a powerhouse of innovation. Uh, Ed Hoffman was an amazing human being. I would have loved him to be alive to receive a Nobel Prize. Um, you know, such a deserving guy. Um, but I guess since Ed and, and Michelle have passed away, that leaves Mike Phelps behind. So um, Phelps is a force of nature, that's for sure. And there are a few people who have shaped nuclear medicine more than he has. Um, I had the opportunity to spend uh, time in his department at UCLA about 10 years ago. And actually, we even founded uh, two companies together, Sophie Biosciences and Imaginab. Um, so perhaps I'm biased, but then um, knowing Phelps, if he did get the Nobel Prize, it would be a really good party, and I hope that I would get an invite. Thank you. Let's wait for the first week in October. Who do you think we should invite to this podcast? I, I, I feel like a very wide diversity of opinion um, you know, would, would be great. Um, Richard Baum's obviously made a very substantial contribution to the field and has a lot of, you know, you should ask him about the uh, homebrew versus the uh, homebrew versus the uh, corporate uh, availability. I'm sure he'd have some interesting answers for you and some pretty, pretty strong critiques. Um, Jean-Francois uh, Jean Chatel is one of my favorite uh, people in nuclear medicine. He's a, such an old timer. When I used to sit in his office, he could show me dot matrix printouts of PET scans uh, or spec scans from some of the very early radio-labeled antibodies. Um, um, and I, I, think the, I think that his career has been super fascinating. Um, and he's, you know, he's not a young guy anymore, so if you want to interview him, you need to act soon. Um, I think that uh, Mike Sasecki, uh, in, in, from South Africa, I think he's uh, an example of person who's driving the nuclear medicine field outside of the mainstream. He's he's a part of the mainstream. I mean, I think that most people in the in the field think he's one of the smartest guys, but he's he's showing what nuclear medicine can do in the in the in a different part of the you know environment. Um, so I think that that's I think that's very important. Um, so, I, I mean, you look, there's so many great people in this field. Thank you. Thank you for your time, Chris. Good. Great. Take care, everybody. Take care. Yeah. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah.
that was Chris. Uh, one of the, I think, the, one of the most important industry leaders uh, into this field. And it was really interesting to, uh, to listen to him, to listen to, to his ideas on the future of Terragnostic. Yes. Uh, Very good, I must say. And impressive his, uh, uh, I mean, how much he covers the different uh, mm. fields and so on. And as you say, one of the most important Terragnostic leaders, I would say, mm. for mm. the future and also that has been the latest years. No. And it's nice to hear because I think he's really have an idea of, of the terragnostic and how nuclear medicine should be a part of oncology in the future. It's, you know, it's just that basement floor uh, department. It should be one of the departments of the cancer treatment for the future. And, and that's an interesting insight. Well, I think uh, what was really interesting to hear his view on uh, moving from the research in the basement and up to getting to secure access to patients. Mm. That I think is yeah. really mm. great to have that view. And he has that mm. view. And that is very promising for the future indeed, for diagnostic and not the least the patients. And, and he also underscores that in the end, it is the patients that is the driving force for him. And I really yeah. like that. Mm. Mm, that's so important. What do you think, Annette? Should we close the podcast for this week? Yes, we do. If you want to reach out to us, please uh, send us an email. Podcast at samnordic.se Podcast at samnordic.se And uh, see you in the next podcast. Stay tuned. Stay safe.